feel your feelings. I mean, what does that even mean? That was the feedback I got from the guy who groaned as I explained the first step of my system for reducing stress and anxiety during a recent talk I gave. Feel your feelings. Yeah, I'll admit, it's a hard one to parse. And for the record, the first step of the process is actually to acknowledge your feelings. But even that is a tough one. I'll be honest, I'm just as tired of being told to feel my feelings as the grown guy. Honestly, there was a time when all I wanted to do was to be able to get through my life without my feelings. Feelings just gum up the works. They get in the way. Feelings take nice, solid, objective things and then turn them into squishy, mushy things. You know, am I right? And that's exactly why I got into therapy in the first place. You're listening to The Happier Approach, the show that pulls back the curtain on the need to succeed, hustle, and achieve at the price of our inner peace and relationships. And I'm your host, Nancy Jane Smith. You know, I joke that the reason I decided to become a therapist was so I could figure out my feelings and be able to justify them away. And then I would never have to deal with them at all. But that strategy, yeah, it didn't work for me, which is why I'm here today talking about feelings. But it isn't about feeling your feelings, because the grown guy was right. What does that even mean? It is a phrase that has been beaten to death and overused with no meaning. So in this episode, I'm going to share what I would say to all those people who would audibly groan if I said it all starts with acknowledging your feelings. (sighs) In December, we talked about the three characters that play in our minds, the monger, inner critic, the BFF, that voice of false self-compassion, and the biggest fan, the voice of kindness and wisdom. When we hear our monger talking and berating us, or our BFF judging other people or sabotaging us, the goal is to bring in the voice of the biggest fan. All this month, we'll be diving deeper into my three-step ask system for calling in the biggest fan. I talked about these three steps in previous episodes, episode number 72, 73, and 74. But now, after teaching these concepts for two years, I wanted to expand on what I talked about previously and add in some new tips. First, I have a confession. I dislike three-step systems. Not because they don't work, but because they simplify a very nuanced, individualized process. The challenge is people with high-functioning anxiety love rules. They love a guide, something they can follow exactly to the letter and feel better. And ask, my very own three-step system for reducing your anxiety, appears to do that, when in fact it requires a bit more complexity than it appears on the surface. In fact, for years I avoided making a system for this very reason. I didn't want to simplify a complex process. So think of ask as the bare minimum, the basic foundation from which you can jump off to make this process your own. But first, let me define what ask means. The ask system is number one, acknowledge what you're feeling. Two, slow down and get into your body. And three, kindly pull back to see the big picture. Let's look at ask a little deeper. A, acknowledge what you're feeling. When your monger tries to shame and belittle you, your biggest fan acknowledges what you're feeling, such as you must be tired, scared, angry, or sad. S. Slow down and get into your body. When your monger tries to speed you up and make everything more intense, your biggest fan tries to slow everything down, encouraging you to take a break, pause, breathe, do a full body movement. And K. Kindly pull back to see the big picture. 
When your manga just sees doom and gloom and engages in black and white thinking, your biggest fan sees lots of color. She encourages you to think of different solutions, brainstorm, and see the other colors. Most important, your biggest fan is kind. We tend to be harsh on ourselves when we are looking for new solutions, so this can take some practice. Today, we're going to spend some time on the first step, acknowledge your feelings. Over the next few weeks, we'll dive deeper into the other steps. So, acknowledge what you're feeling. You might be asking, okay, Nancy, but what do feelings have to do with anxiety? The truth is, feelings have a lot to do with anxiety. In fact, much of the time when you're feeling anxiety, it's tied to feelings that you're not allowing yourself to feel. I can't talk about feelings without pulling back and looking at the bigger issue, which is loyalty to self. Self-loyalty is something I talk a lot about because people with high-functioning anxiety have a higher sense of loyalty to their friends and family. Anyone on their inner circle, they feel extremely loyal to. They'll go to the ends of the earth for their people. Yet, when it comes to themselves, they often push aside whatever they're experiencing. People with high-functioning anxiety can push through and ignore discomfort and pain like nobody's business. In fact, being able to push through and soldier on is a point of pride for those of us with high-functioning anxiety. It is also a huge reason we struggle with anxiety. This pushing without acknowledging our experience leaves us living a life that is based on surviving the day rather than thriving in the day. A key to this work is building loyalty with ourselves, and that starts with being curious about our experience and acknowledging it. Here are two different scenarios. Scenario one, you wake up in the morning and you remember a business call with a difficult client you have later that day. You're immediately filled with dread and your monger is talking a mile a minute. You tell yourself, change your thoughts, think positive, it'll just be fine. And every time the feeling of dread comes up, you tell yourself to change your thoughts and think positive. So all day long, you're pushing the feeling under the surface, ignoring the dread and pretending it isn't there. By the time the phone call comes around, you might be feeling pretty good. In fact, you write at the top of your paper, you've got this. No one can get you down. The phone call comes and goes. And although the client was still belittling and you barely got through it without bursting into tears, you got through it. You did burst into tears afterwards and spent the rest of the day bitching about the client and how he is so mean. Your monger continues to hammer you for feeling weak, and by the end of the night, all you want to do is numb out with a glass of wine, some Oreos, and Netflix. Here's some things to notice in scenario one. You ignored whatever was coming up for you. There was no self-loyalty, no acknowledging of feelings. There was just soldier on, think positive, and get through it. There was a sense that the client knows better and you are destined to feel like crap anytime you work with this client. In scenario one, you were surviving life. You were moving through life, trying not to get snagged by uncomfortable feelings and white knuckling through unpleasant situations. You weren't trying to find a resolution and you weren't diving any deeper than necessary. This is where many of my clients with high functioning anxiety live. So here's scenario two. You wake up in the morning and you remember a business call later that day. You're immediately filled with dread and your monger is talking a mile a minute. Hmm, what's that about, you wonder? And you ask yourself to just label what you're feeling. You're feeling insecure and nervous. You remember that the last time you had this call with this particular client, it didn't go well and he was particularly harsh with you. When you arrive at work, you start brainstorming how you can help it go better. You know you are 100% prepared for the meeting, so it isn't your lack of prep. It's the client's tone and communication style. You put a post-it note on your computer that says, he'll be harsh, 
and it's not about you, to hopefully remind yourself that it isn't about you. He's just a harsh person. When you hang up the phone, you don't burst into tears, which is a total step up from last time, but you still feel like something was missing. The client was particularly belittling, and the post-it note helped, but not enough. On your way home, you kindly rehash the conversation, which means you aren't beating yourself up for what went wrong or that you felt uncomfortable. Rather, you're curious to note when you felt discomfort and what could be done differently next time. You remember it went off the rails when he asked for more details. He is such a detail person, and you just don't think like that. So you decide to ask a coworker to help you drill down on the details. Maybe that will help for next time. You'll be more prepared and have better answers, and the sticky note will remind you it isn't about you. Here are some things to notice in scenario two. You were being loyal to yourself first. Curiosity is the theme. What am I feeling? What do I do with that? How can I make changes to acknowledge those feelings and do it differently? There was also a sense of fluidity. It wasn't about surviving the call. It was about bringing curiosity to the call, being vulnerable, asking for help, and leaning into the discomfort so it can go better. You were more present to the whole situation. You were present to your thoughts, feelings, and actions, and you were present to your client's thoughts, feelings, and actions. You were engaged in your life. You recognized there was no perfect right way, that the process is trial and error, and it can get messy, but your overall goal for your life was to be as present and engaged as possible. Here's the thing. Scenario two is the practice of acknowledging your feelings. It's simply acknowledging they're there and then asking, okay, is there an action I can take to ease this feeling? Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes you're dealing with things that are out of your control, grief, sadness, change. And in those situations, you're just going to acknowledge the feeling and sit with it in your body. You might even ask yourself, well, what do I need now? Maybe it's to take a walk or journal, or maybe it is to numb. I say this because we have this mystique around acknowledging our feelings that when we do, we'll be in this pit of despair, never to come out again. When it comes to acknowledging your feelings, Dr. Susan David, a psychologist at Harvard Medical School, writes in her book, Emotional Agility, that there tend to be two types of people, brooders and bottlers. Brooders just can't let it go. They're flooded by feelings. They tend to keep score of their hurts. Their intention is good. They want to feel happy, so they try to move beyond their negative feelings by thinking through their feelings and experiencing them fully over and over again. Bottlers... They hold it all in, but it usually comes out in other places through misdirected feelings, physical ailments, or numbing. Their intention is good. They want to feel happy, so they try to move beyond their negative feelings by ignoring them and pushing them down. In my experience, individuals who are overwhelmed by their monger and struggle with high-functioning anxiety tend to fall on the bottler side of the continuum. They hold it in because they don't want to experience a lot of their negative feelings. They tell themselves this grief is too intense. This regret is too much. And that anger, it's too strong. Feelings are messy. They bring up stuff, stuff we don't want to experience. So here are the patterns that most bottlers get stuck in. Pattern number one, stuff it down. We tell ourselves it isn't appropriate to feel that way. So we ignore it, usually followed by some type of numbing, soldiering on, or having a 10 reaction to a two situation. The second pattern, analyzing it. One of the ways our monger tricks us into thinking we're acknowledging the feeling is to analyze it. 
We think we're helping because we're trying to understand ourselves. But when we immediately jump to the why without allowing the feeling, we get stuck in justifying, proving, and defending the feeling, which leads us nowhere. Yes, the why is important eventually, but first we need to acknowledge the feeling and label it without defending it. And the third pattern, we judge it. Based on the why we came up with when we were analyzing the feeling, we move on to judging if it's okay that we're having the feeling. And usually we decide it's not okay. So we circle back to stuffing it. Something that really helped me with the feelings piece of the work is the research of Jill Bolt-Taylor, a neuroanatomist and author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey. She found that our feelings only last 90 seconds. She explained our emotional response like this. She says, once triggered, the chemical release by my brain surges through my body and I have a physiological experience. Within 90 seconds from the initial trigger, the chemical component of my anger has completely dissipated from my blood and my automatic response is over. If, however, I remain angry after those 90 seconds have passed, then it's because I've chosen to let that circuit continue to run. Feelings are happening all the time. We see someone walking down the street towards us and we feel a certain way. Maybe we feel joyful or fearful, but the feeling only lasts a minute and then poof, it's gone. The problem comes in when we judge our feelings, analyze them, and shove them back down because we decided they aren't worthy. When that judgment happens, we end up being punished for our feelings. Not only are we feeling something unpleasant, but we're judging ourselves for the unpleasantness and forcing ourselves to feel it for longer than necessary, which just compounds this messy process of acknowledging our feelings. If you're a bottler, this insight from Jill Bolt-Taylor is helpful because you probably choose not to give yourself 90 seconds to acknowledge the feeling. How often do you stop yourself from feeling something? You feel anger, and within 30 seconds, you say to yourself, you shouldn't feel anger, be grateful, or be positive. So you stop the 90-second process. Later, your husband corrects you in front of a friend, and you go off on him because you're so angry. Holding on to the feeling way too long because we never let it do its thing in our body cuts the feeling at its knees, which leaves us full of anxiety and stress. For those who are brooders, what Jill Bolt-Taylor says is helpful to know because it reminds you that if you're experiencing anger about a certain event for longer than 90 seconds, it's probably because you chose to keep replaying the event in your brain and triggering the 90-second cycle over and over and over again. Researchers at UCLA found that people have the belief that if they name the feeling, they're going to feel worse. But in additional studies, they found that when we use one or two words to acknowledge the feeling, we have less of a biological response. The key is in the labeling. Many of my clients who are bottlers live in fear of becoming a brooder. They think that if they own one of their feelings, that makes them super needy and a wallower. Here's the reality for all you bottlers out there. The danger of you becoming a brooder because you start labeling your feelings is highly unlikely. We're less likely to get stuck in the feeling when we label it. We get stuck in the feeling when we start obsessing about the why and justifying if it's okay to have the feeling. That justification often leads to drama and having a level 10 reaction to a level 2 situation. But when we label the feelings, we allow ourselves the 90 seconds and it's over. That's it. Nothing mysterious, nothing too crazy. Acknowledging your feelings is a process. 
Owning that you're feeling something after years of pushing it down and avoiding it takes time. So make sure to give yourself a break as you move through this step. When we have spent our whole lives avoiding our feelings, being able to identify them and label them is like learning a foreign language. In the show notes, I will link to the feelings charts that lists feelings and their intensities. Use this as a way to get in touch with what you're feeling. Whenever I notice my monger is loud or that low buzz of anxiety is hanging around, I will grab for the feeling sheet and I'll name eight to 10 feelings. I encourage you to jump around the sheet when you first start labeling your feelings. Everything feels like it is a high intensity because you're so uncomfortable with feelings in general. So we only allow for feelings when it's a high intensity. For example, for those of us uncomfortable with anger, we might just be annoyed or upset about something, relatively low intensity, but we have to pump ourselves up and amplify the problem until we are seething because then we can justify the anger better. There's a big difference between feeling seething and feeling annoyed. Recognizing the intensities and knowing that not all feelings are high intensity is helpful in making us more comfortable with feelings overall. Just notice your tendency to hang out in the high intensity motions and challenge yourself to name as many feelings as possible. By the time you name 8 to 10, you can really see how the feelings are coming out. For example, with regards to the client call in the scenario earlier, you might feel panicky, worthless, embarrassed, unworthy, worried, unsure, intimidated, disappointed, uneasy, or insecure. Those feelings included sad, angry, afraid, and ashamed. You could even throw in relieved and thankful when the call is over. Acknowledging your feelings is the first step in channeling your biggest fan, and honestly, it's one of the hardest. Give yourself lots of time and room with this step. Your monger is not comfortable with feelings and will give you a lot of pushback. That's okay, and it is to be expected. But as you hear your monger chatting, practice ask. Acknowledge that this process is uncomfortable. Own that it's stretching you. Label that it makes you want to crawl out of your skin. Our monger loves to distract us from the truth in our life. The more you can acknowledge what's really going on, the better you'll feel. If you don't do it, who will? I mean, if you're not hustling, pushing, and keeping it all together yourself, nothing will get done. Look, you don't need me to tell you that. You tell yourself that every day. There's that voice inside your head constantly pushing you to do more, be more, and get closer to perfect. And then there are all the people, your family, friends, and random people on the street who congratulate you on how productive you are. Mixed messages. Am I right? I know I'm right because I've dealt with high-functioning anxiety too. I know what it's like to relish the accolades that come your way one minute and shame yourself for being so tired and overwhelmed the next. And I've been working with women like you living with hidden anxiety every day for over 20 years as a coach and counselor. I wrote the happier approach to give you a framework for dealing with your anxiety and start living happier. The happier approach will help you understand the voices in your head and what to do with them. It's not another woo-woo self-help book that asks you to think positively and live your best life. It's a practical guidebook for getting out of survival mode and finding a genuinely happy and productive life. You can find The Happier Approach on Amazon, Audible, or barnesandnoble.com. And do you know someone who struggles with high-functioning anxiety? Please share this podcast with them. You can send them a link to the show website, live dash happier.com backslash podcast or you can encourage them to listen via apple podcasts or overcast for apple phones or stitcher and google podcasts for androids 
Because for those of us with high-functioning anxiety, we can feel so alone, and asking for help is hard. Hearing from a trusted friend about a helpful resource can be a godsend, so don't underestimate the power in sharing.